Hello, welcome back to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people for the last 14 years by FL Montreal, of course. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL's Mike Newton. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. So, of course, I'm very excited for the show tonight. I mean, in 14 years, uh, I don't know why we haven't invited the head of Boostan on the program earlier. Uh, Imad Saad will join us. Uh, he acquired Boostan a few years ago, and it's really um, spreading joy across uh, Quebec and across Ontario now. They're dipping into Ontario and even the States, 50-plus locations now for uh, for the legendary Boostan. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story. It's, uh, it, you know, you, you see the success. You know that the one downtown has been an institution in Montreal for years. Uh, you know, the, 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 anybody who's been out <clears throat> drinking in the downtown core, I, apparently I read that, uh, you know, people do that and then uh, went to Boostown late in the morning. <laughs> um, but uh, it, I, th I think the, the, the interesting component here is the element, the massive element of risk of taking, you know, one or two really staple restaurants. And deciding that that can be a franchise, deciding that you can turn that into, I mean, how many restaurants have we seen over the years that have had a phenomenal run with one restaurant and then fell flat on their face trying to franchise it? It's interesting, you know, I went through my clubbing phase, as you know, a lot of people do, and I went through a Crescent phase and, and the Saint Laurent phase. And through both phases, I had both boost stands waiting for me at 2, 3 a.m. after after the the drinking time was over. And I have to say, you know, when you develop relationships like that with an entire generation, I mean, a lot of millennials know Boostan. Can you use that relationship to start a franchise, Mike? You know, is is that is are those little experiences 10, 15 years ago enough to propel a North American franchise? Yeah. And, and I think that's where I, I mentioned the risk component to all of this is, you know, you're taking a, a really good idea in a in a known comfortable environment that has been successful because of demographics because of location and can you spin that off in, into something more significant and that's really what uh, what our guest today has been doing and 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 what Bustan has done and I I guess he's proving that uh, that you can do that I mean here's a man who's looking at, at continued growth varying locations uh crossing over uh, you know uh, territory so yeah I you know I guess the answer to the question is yeah you can do it I, but I do think and and we'll get this from him shortly there's more to it than just waking up one morning and say, hey, here's a great idea. Let's run with it. You know, he looks at this from an environmental standpoint. He looks at this from a cultural standpoint. He looks at it from a sense of community standpoint. And, you know, he's taking a lot of factors into play here that, you know, uh, sometimes uh, we don't always think of on on fast food. All right. So Imad Saad of Bustan coming up and Nick Moraitis also on the program to talk about that sort of growth process and how to build a, a multinational corporation and uh, and and how to also prepare for your exit from that corporation eventually as well. The interesting part with Nick is, you know, as much as you're talking about building multinational, I think we're going to get into this kind of core concept that this strategy and the structure that he's talking about is is really basic to a lot of uh, small business owners. So, you know, as much as we really like to think and, you know, especially from the accountant and the tax perspective that, hey, we're building multinationals, uh, Nick's, Nick's talk is is really for all of us. Mm, indeed. Um, first, let's talk about this piece from The Atlantic. I wanted to bring it up um, from Annie Duke. Does that name sound familiar? Mike? Yeah, it's a TSN, I don't know, poker days. I don't know what it was. Uh, there's something in there that sounds familiar. Yeah, she she's really the original female professional poker player. And she had a lot of success. 
uh, left that and is now a published author, and she's fell, fallen into this specialty uh, of quitting. Her new book is actually um, about quitting. It's called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. And so in this piece of The Atlantic, she previews uh, her argument, and it's basically that winners, she, she argues, Mike, um, all have something in common. They know when to quit. They know when to either leave a job, sell a business, um, leave a relationship. They know when to walk away and move forward. I think it's a really, really interesting argument. Well, I think her her history is a perfect example, right? It's when to walk away at the table. You know, if you're playing poker, there's a time to to to, to fake it, and there's a time to say, you know what, calculate the risk and decide going forward. I mean, she has this conversation in in the article that talks about, you know, grit is not always uh, a positive uh, attribute at the end of the day. Uh, and again, I, I think like everything in life, it's a question of perspective, it's a question of environment, and it's a question of what you're doing. And, and grit is useful if it's part of the strategy uh, and part of what you want to accomplish. But uh, it, it, you know, if you get a chance to read it, it's very interesting. It talks about you know uh, marathoners uh, running on broken legs, and uh, you know, there's just at what point do you look at this? And you know what? Now's my time to. Uh, to take a strategic move here. Grit is really interesting as a concept that she deals with because it's very American, I guess, the word. And, uh, you know, what is grit practically? You know, what does that mean at a, at a sort of neurocognitive level? And she talks about that in, in the piece. And she also talks about how that clashes with the sunk cost fallacy, which is a mistake that we all make as humans when we feel that we're so invested into something that we cannot possibly pull out or cannot possibly move on. And the concept of grit comes right up against that cognitive bias, the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting because, you know, if you talk to any entrepreneur, they're going to tell you that, you know, go in knowing that it's going to be a rough ride and you've got to be prepared to to grind it out. You've got to have that tenacity. You've got to have that grit, uh, you know, in order. So I, I think finding, you know, when to when to use it in, in, in the right manner, I think, is, is a very interesting element that she's raising in, in this environment. She also talks about the quiet quitting phenomenon. We've talked about that in, in recent weeks. A quick recap, Mike. What is uh, quiet quitting? And uh, One Piece actually claims that it's a fake trend. Did you buy that? Um, well, you know, it, it, I say this lovingly while we're on air that, you know, the media does have a, a little bit of a play in, you know, how we see things in the world. And, and there's no doubt that this whole concept of, uh, of quiet quitting or the great resignation and, and, and the lie flat. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of words that have we've had a great lot of fun with, even on this show, in terms of where we are in, in COVID environment that have brought things to light. When you really dig into what those mean, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you're talking about practices that have been going on for decades, centuries. I mean, people have tried to get away with doing the least amount of work at a job. It's not something that COVID came up with. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the article was, is interesting. And it says that, you know, the reason for bosses to concern themselves it not that these trends that they're describing are real behavior, because it's been real behavior for a long time. But it's that so many people find this appealing. The concept of, you know, quietly quitting where I work nine to five and at 501, I push away from my desk and say, I'm done for the day. No overtime, no extra effort. Well, it also brings up the issue that for every person that quits at five o'clock and somebody works till seven, are they really working less or are they more efficient? Right. So you can have this whole discussion on productivity. So there's a whole concept here that, you know, makes for a really good radio show and a lot of really good print. Uh, but I'm not sure at the end of the day that other than putting a name to it, that uh, that anything's changed in, in, in a very long time. The questioning of that trend, that piece uh, you can uh, read in the Washington Post, the fakest of fake work workplace trends, according to 
the author anyway. And this piece from the Wall Street Journal about quiet quitting is uh, goes in another direction and, and might end up getting people quiet fired, as they say, because, I mean, if you're quiet quitting, eventually someone's going to catch on. Yeah, I, I got a good chuckle out of this piece, you know, finally one that goes the other side of the of the discussion here and talks about, sure, you want to quiet quit, sure, you want to do great, but you know what, as employers, we can also see that you're quietly quitting. So it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you're sneaking this under the radar. It doesn't mean that it's going that, you know, you're, you're kind of chuckling to yourself as as you push away from your desk at five o'clock going, yeah, nobody's going to figure this out. I mean, there's a cost to this. There's a cost to this economically today. There's a cost to this on a long-term basis. And, you know, all of this stuff is going to be turned on its ear when and if and when we find ourselves in the next a uh, recession when people are no longer going to tolerate it. And, and people have been tolerating it just because the workforce has had a philosophical change in the last little while. And it's, you know, is it trend worthy? Yeah, I think so. But, uh, you know, don't uh, basically the concept of the article is, uh, you know, don't think uh, your quiet quitting can lead to anything other than possibly quiet firing. It is a little funny. Which is actually actual firing at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a bit funny that that the problem is being framed as this new pandemic era thing when, you know, a lot of people have been dissatisfied about their jobs for a long time. And maybe this is giving us the opportunity to talk about it. And we should talk about it. If you, if you are unhappy with your job, that is a drag on life. Yeah, I think the pandemic, and, and we've said this many times before, I think the pandemic has proved to be an accelerator in many, many instances. Uh, I mean, a lot of these things that we've talked about and, and are continuing to get a lot of press uh, really are trends or items or issues or are problems that existed for a long time. What you just said, Dan, is exactly it. We know there's now a voice for it. And the environment is such that, you know, any time that you're sitting with a, a, a shift in, uh, you know, paradigm shift, and whether that's towards employees, towards employers, you are going to get a dialogue that's going to come out. The pandemic has moved up a lot of complaints that have been going on uh, for a long time in, in, in our workplaces. So, you know, as much as we like to think that we can blame it all on the pandemic, I think all it's really done is, is, is help to come to the forefront. I want to throw a random one at you because it was asked of me um, on a recent edition of the Elias Mackos show on Elias's panel, and it's about salary ranges. And um, there's a movement now in Quebec and elsewhere to make salaries transparent and public. And my argument was, I don't know, like, what problem are they trying to solve here? You know, isn't it better to provide a salary range and give both employers and employees the flexibility to hire someone with more or less experience? I'm not quite sure about about the demand here. And uh, I have a feeling you agree. But what 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 would be the the plus and if everyone knew everyone's salaries? You know, that silence, that's what I think of the plus. <laughs> uh, I, I really, you know, this is, uh, I, I know the whole idea here is transparency. I know the whole idea here is fairness. It's equality. Uh, and, and I'm going to come off sounding like an old stodgy white man, which I guess at the end of the day is really where I am. But, uh, I, you know, I look at this and I say there are certain things that that don't serve a purpose. Uh, I think a range is an opportunity to kind of fall within that. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, let's be honest, most people in, a, in an employment environment, the moment they come out of their eval, start talking to everybody else in terms of what their salaries are. So it doesn't matter what I publish at, at the end of the day, they're going to get there. I, I, I think, you know, the, the whole concept of, of range uh, and even more so the whole concept of making this public. Um, 
you know, it goes against what was the last trend that we dealt with is, you know, don't put up productivity. Our team wants to work together. They don't want people being singled out. They don't, what they want is they want this cohesion. Well, if you're going to start posting salaries and you're going to start doing, you're going to work against that. And if I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to start posting salaries, then, hey, I'm going to start posting productivity. And oh, by the way, that's really not going to go over well in today's world. So, you know, I think you got where I stand on that thought. <laughs> yeah, posting and, I'm, and, I'm, and I would be shocked if you thought I was going to come up with anything different than that. <laughs> no, I did not. And uh, and but I understand. I, I I sympathize with your position. I think I'm more on your side than on the complete transparency side. And uh, in in terms of uh, you know the workplace, we have to acknowledge that people work differently. Some people do want to work two three hours past closing time. Some people do want to work overtime on weekends and some people want to be rewarded for that. And others just want their nine to five and want it to, to stay simple. That's fine. Dan, it's one word. Our world should be accountable. We should be accountable to each other. We should be accountable for our choices. And if you choose, as we discussed before, the quiet quit, okay, if you want to do a certain amount and get paid a certain amount. But the moment we start bringing the bar to the lowest common denominator of transparency is the moment we continue to lose ground on an international scale. And we continue to lose ground of creativity and productivity. Where is the benefit to an individual who really wants to shine and push their way forward when everybody knows what everybody's making. And at the end of the day, I'm going to fall within a range only because it's the politically correct thing to do. So it's, you know, it, it, it's the old capitalism fighting against the, you know, the, uh, the kind of uh, quasi socialist mentality that this province, you know, is, is full of at the end of the day. So, but I think we still need to have a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. And I, and I think the challenge for all of us is finding that balance. I'm not saying that pure unadulterated capitalism is the answer, nor do I think that, uh, you know, Marxism is, 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 is the right answer either. There's got to be somewhere in between. And uh, I think that's as entrepreneurs, what we're facing right now. And that's the challenge. Whether you're a Marxist or a capitalist, chances are you're going to love a shawarma or falafel sandwich at Bustan. And uh, our guest today, as we mentioned earlier, is really a local legend. I mean, what can you say about Bustan that hasn't already been said by me in ecstasy at 3 a.m. on the corner of St. Laurent and St. Catherine? What a great pleasure to have Imad Saad, the head of Bustan, with us. Imad, welcome to today's Entrepreneur. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mike, for having me here today. Thank you so much, guys. Like, what a well-loved... So much of a legend, though. It's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a well-loved institution Bustan is. So for those that don't know, for, for the couple of people, the six people who, who, who don't know, Imad, what is Bustan? Well, uh, Bustan has been, honestly, a part of Montreal for the longest time, as long as we know it, right? It's been uh, since 1986 when it got established by Mr. Matt Smidey which is the original founder of Wustan. Uh, and you know what, it's uh, it's been growing in Montreal and for for all of us that, sp that spent nights on Crescent after drinking and grabbing the shawarma at, the, at 3 a.m., like you said. And uh, now we got the opportunity to acquire the brand in 2017 and grow it into a multi-unit uh, multi all over Quebec. And now we're going growing into the rest of Canada and the USA. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Serving part of the, the best Lebanese cuisine, sorry, the, that I didn't. Yeah, go ahead. Excellent. No, I, I and I think that's part of the story we were going to get to over the next little while is, is you know, really how you got there, why you got there and, gotcha. and, and what took you there. So, you know, when you look at it and, and, and if I say, you know, we'll talk about the company, we'll talk about the restaurant, but let's talk about the man for a minute or two. I mean, you started as a franchisee. Uh, in 2017, like you just said, you acquired the brand, moved in as CEO and president 
if, if my memory is good, there was like four stores at the time when, uh, you know, five, maybe somewhere, you know, in, in, in 2017, you're now pushing 50, five, zero. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 50. why? Why did you why did you start? What got you into this? Why choose? Why choose? And then probably my biggest question, why choose a franchise of a, you know, three, four, five restaurant chain that nobody, you know, nobody knows except for one location? <laughs> you know what? Uh, that's one location. That one location had a great history. And uh, many generations has been through it, through the Concordia days and everything. I saw the opportunity through that. Honestly, like you said, I was, I've been in the restaurant business. I was uh, originally IT. I finished in IT. I worked in the U.S. I worked in Montreal. And then I started into Subway as a franchisee in 2001. So uh, that got me, uh, anyways, I did Subway, did other brands. I was always the adventure type. I always wanted to try new things as a, as a business owner. Uh, then I, I, I like the, the diversification of my portfolio a little bit. But not always, always in the restaurant? As always a, in the restaurant, to be honest with you, about different restaurants, different segments. But then after that, what I did, I was like, but around 2009, I was always thinking about how can I get into the other side of the game instead of being a franchisee, being a franchisor. And I was uh, I was exploring that idea by uh, looking at the brands from the U.S. that I was I was, I was looking to possibly bring them into Quebec. I uh, checked out Firehouse back in 2013 or 2012, and other brands from the U.S. that grew uh, substantially. And uh, then, just luckily, I just stumbled on Bustan in 2016, and I was got, coming in as a franchisee, actually, not as a franchisor. And uh, things just took a twist. And uh, one of the owners, there were two owners at that point that owned the, the brand. One of them said that uh, his partner would like to sell. And I took the opportunity to buy, out, buy him out. And uh, my partner then also within a year after two or two years, he started the he'd started sell sell out his portion so that's what took me into buying him out as well and part of the the acquisition was me learning like you know what first of all buying the bustan brand was not just about buying a brand or getting into a franchising concept it was about the the brand that has a history has some kind of a like uh it's an institution i consider out of montreal everybody that went through downtown knows what bustan is so that's what kind of like motivated me and i believe i paid a little bit over what it was worth then because of that fact but i i knew that this was going to bring me somewhere else or help me grow the brand in a different direction so when you when you started as a franchisee, did you start with the goal of saying, "Hey, I'm going to get in here. I want to see if I can get my way to be a franchisor"? Was that always on, or you just happened to stumble upon it as luck would well, have it? Honestly, what happened was really it was a decision from two sides. Like I, uh, when I was coming in as a franchisee and I met the franchisor back then, the franchisor was very very much of a kitchen mindset like a a gentleman that knows about the kitchen knows about how to operate a restaurant Mm -hmm. but he never knew about how to operate a franchise and 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 tell and he told me this straightforward because he saw he saw in me somebody that knows a little bit more about business and running a corporation and understanding that the franchisor side of the game than the franchisee so uh, he he came up to me he's like you know i see that you could help me grow this better and that's why he asked me to buy out his partner Interesting, Dan. You know, once again, there's that word luck. You know, That's we're back it. to back to Peter Simon's uh, conversation a little while, uh, a couple of weekends ago, and and talking about luck and being in the right place, maybe at the right time. The right time, mm-hmm. exactly. That's all about it. 
And capitalizing on the luck as well, Imad, you know, it seems surprising to me that Bustan took so long to be a franchise because everyone loves it so much. As you mentioned, you know, the brand has so much power. I was mentioning my experience late night with the brand. Um, how aggressive did you did you go in terms of franchising? I know you're 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 over 50 stores now. Yes, it's uh, we're 52 as it is right now, and we have another seven opening, six or seven opening before the end of the year. Uh, honestly, we, I didn't have to go too aggressive into trying to create a visibility for the brand. It was already grabbing people off the street that wanted to open stores from the from the time that I came in. But the the trick here was not just opening stores. The trick was mostly about creating a sustainable growth. And then that's meaning like that you had to build the infrastructure at the same time. And that's what took a lot of work from us as a team and myself. It was a lot of, uh, you know, what, working on making sure there's consi consistent products, trying to work on technology within the stores to make it simple to work. Like, you know what, you don't want to leave it to the, make it a mama pop, which it was before I acquired it. So we brought in a lot of technology in the stores. We uh, set up a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, consistent products through central kitchens, so now most of the operation is very simple. Most of the sauce, every, all the sauces, everything comes ready. They're just ready for cooking. And that's it. That's all. So where did you get the franchise or model? What, what inspired you? Like you said, the sauces are all ready. Everything is controlled behind the scenes. Exactly. Where did that come from? Is that historical? Is that uh, Googling? Is, is no, that, you know, franchising 101? Uh, it's franchising 101 really through understanding how McDonald's grew, how Subway grew, how the big names adapted themselves to being able to become the number one franchise around the world. It's by simplify simplifying the process. It's the name of the game is simp simplicity. If you have a simple process, you could succeed. You know, I'm going to say that you took in what is my mind a big risk. You took a you know, one major store. Yes, there was a few others, but one real institution mm -hmm. and, you know, turned it into a franchise. Many people have tried that over the years and failed miserably. Okay. Mm -hmm. Trying to take, you know, that the cachet of a, a central downtown location and turn it into the suburbs or do something else with it. Why do you think, why do you think this worked? Look, Bustan was not just another single store that in the middle of nowhere that nobody knows, you know, at a burger shop that just like, okay, it's another another place that people heard about or tried at once. Bustan lived with people through Concordia years from 1986 up to 2017 when I acquired it, right? So how many generations have been through the store? How many generations have been through downtown and have history with Bustan of like being drunk and having that sh that sh shawarma chicken with uh, with garlic sauce and the, <laughs> and the garlic potatoes, right? I think we've all I been have there. no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I had the potatoes in the sandwich and on the side too. That's, that's pretty much it. So there was a value to this. You know what? A lot of things that brings us back to McDonald's is being growing with as kids, trying the McDonald's when we were kids, and it brings nice memories of us having that same burger, same taste. So oh, same thing for Bustan. You know what? It brings good memories to people. You know what? When we're in our younger days, drinking and out with the buddies, and now we know what? We're having a shawarma at the middle of the night. It's like bring good memories back. So people were looking for that. So Imad, jumping right back in, you're actually coming to us from Toronto today. Now, the demographics are shifting in terms of your business. The locations are shifting, 50 plus stores now, including uh, making your way into Ontario. Have you noticed that there are enough Montrealers in Toronto that have that relationship with Bustan that, that you think uh, you'll, you'll be taking off there as well? 
You know what? Uh, definitely there is a big... You know what? We've seen it through our social media as well. A lot of people are asking for us to, to come into Toronto and others. It's We have a lot of community here in Toronto that knows about Bustan. Is it big enough to uh, to say that we, we're coming with a strong... Uh, like uh, foothold here into the market, definitely not. I'm not going to say that, but we, you know what? It's a new market. It's an important market, and we we need to start being present in new markets and create the legacy that we created in Montreal and new markets as well, because we believe in our products and what we have to offer. I mean that that that, that shift away from is you know we, we we've all been joking this morning about you know that whole discussion of you know 3 a.m. and I mean it's a very different shift. It's a very different it's, cultural it's, environment to go away from that to moving into other locations. I mean, I think you're also, you've had, you had a store in Cornwall, you've uh, New Brunswick. So it's a very different environment. So what do you, when you go to scout out a location, what are you looking for? Well, you know what? It's just, it's business. It's business like one-on-one pretty much. Location is all about, you want to find demographics that it's going to work for you. You got to find the right population that's going to be able to be. You're going to be able to attract with what you're offering. At the same time, you're going to find you're going to find anchors that's going to help you bring the clientele to where you're at. You're not going to open in the middle of the desert and expect that you're going to succeed, of course, right? So you know, to open next to universities, you want to open an anchored shopping mall. You know, at with grocery stores, dollar stores, stuff like that. You got to look at different markets and different views. Not everything works the same. And you got to analyze and see the type of demographic. You cannot open in a very aged area like in the people that are in the 70s, 80s and expect that they're going to have shawarma every day, right? So, but you want to be more in the younger clientele. And we've shifted a lot. If you notice our menu changes in the last uh, few months, we've shifted a lot into new new direction if you notice the bowls the salad bowls that we created the vegan products that we created a lot of things that took a little bit more of a direction to be more like up to date in the 2022 era do you change your menu by geographic location or is it mm-hmm. going to be the same menu no matter what store i walk into it's going to be always the same menu it's like you're walking into mcdonald's from uh, coast to coast from country to country it's going to be the same thing we're sticking to the same product we're just gonna make sure that it's uh, that it we built the menu that works for all the markets as someone with a with a middle eastern background as well i'm delighted to see uh franchise franchises pop up of different kinds of foods that are that are not just North American. What are your thoughts on that and sort of competing with the Subways and McDonald's on that level? Well, look, we're always competing as a as a big market food food market. Everybody's competing for a share of the market, right? It's not it's not only that we're competing with shawarma and shawarma, but at the same time, you know what? The variety always brings breaks people together, right? It brings people into where you're at. You always look for these like different offerings and you go open where they're at because people want to look for the variety. They want, they enjoy, I'm not going to have McDonald's every day. I'm not going to have Bustan every day. I'm going to have Subway every day. So you want to, but you want to have them in the same area. So you know what? Okay. I'll take my picker on a daily basis. Definitely. It's, it's always, you know what? I feel that new generations and, uh, and that people, as we know it, people like diversity. They're not, they're not, they're, they get bored from the, the repeat, repetitive, same old thing. So that's why there's a market always for new flavors and new ideas. And you talk about the sense of community within the restaurant, but also in terms of the culture and the, the thought process and the approach that you're bringing. I mean, Bustan's always had not just a physical presence in the community, but how, how do you see, how do you see your role as a look? You're you're obviously a leader in some of these marketplaces. How do you see your role changing now that you have the 
the the exposure that you have, the number of stores that you have, and what does that mean to community? Look, uh, I don't know if you've followed what we've done. I think I have, well, not I think. I've had a, an interview with CGD about a couple of years ago when we did a like an action uh, supporting the community during COVID that was feeding the homeless. Also, we did uh, feeding the needy at home, we, which we served meals uh, on Christmas Eve for 300 families, if I remember right, and other things. So this is ongoing. We're doing it either we speak about it regularly or indiscreetly. So there is always ongoing process in a part of our company that we keep on doing that so to support the community in different ways. But this is part of our core mission. And that's what we want to continue doing in our as a part of being part of Montreal, part of, part of Canada. This is what we do. So how do you take that with what I think for some people during a time of crisis is a marketing ploy? You know, so we're going to be visible. Oh, we're being philanthropic when, in fact, you know, they're taking advantage of an opportunity. Uh, you know, you're 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 very sincere. And and what is that? How do you how do you sell the sincerity to all of this? That's you know what? You know, people could take it whatever way they like. The idea is at the end, I know what I'm doing is I'm doing it out of my out of the heart. We there's things that you'll never hear about that we did, but we did it. Okay, and that's why I'm not going to talk more about it. But you know what? It's like when we find opportunity to serve the community in the, in the right way. Because look, it's the community is really serving us in the right way, right? They're liking our product. They're making us survive. They're making us store succeed. So we got to give back to a, to, a center, to a certain degree. I believe in that and I really trust in that. So this is part of the core belief that I have into the company and what we need to do as a community. And I I hope every franchise or every every brand could do a part. It, make, it would make the world a better place for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I think you're, you know, you're, you're a guy who's got this sense of, of belonging and responsibility as a business owner. I know the environment plays very largely into the way you market and, and, and where you go. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, I think for a lot of us, we look at the, you know, environmental concept of a fast food restaurant as changing the takeaway containers or, you know, maybe not having plastic cutlery at the end of the day. But from your perspective, I think it goes a lot deeper than that. Well, the for the you're talking about the environmental uh, impact of our of the environmental our, impact, and and I know you you're you're trying to you're you're acquiring produce from local uh, you yeah, know local sources. Definitely. So yes. I think there's a whole big imp, you know imprint here that you're trying to make in the local community. For sure. Look, uh, what, again, like supporting communities is not just supporting by giving back to uh, hospitals or other uh, institutions that uh, that supports the community, but also supporting the businesses within the community is by by finding who we could work with, like uh, from chicken suppliers to vegetable suppliers to potato uh, producers within Quebec and within Ontario and other places in Canada. So that's part of our mission. Always, we're looking always how to work with these companies that will grow the economy and help other people to grow within the market, right? Uh, meanwhile, definitely the, the containers and the change the changes to the to the what do you call it uh, the environment that we're living in. This is something important. That's a that's a, to obligation. Market, uh, sorry, your obligation is that. That's where? our obligation. Thank right. you. Thank you. Yes, that's our obligation towards one another and towards the planet that we live on, right? So we got to make sure that we're able to kind of like participate into changing things to make it better for the long haul for everybody. 
So did you did your did your shift on sourcing have anything to do with supply chain issues during COVID, or has this pretty much been your plan from the beginning to try and buy as much local as possible? No, I've been really concentrated on buying local as possible since the beginning. Again, COVID has put a lot of damper into this. Of course, we know that the supply chain was disrupted majorly, so we definitely maybe had to like deroute on that. But now that it's over, there's a bit of stability again on the market, and we're going back to the normal. Uh, the, the, the like back to what we were at before. So what's your goal with Bustin? Where do you want to go? What do you want to achieve? What legacy do you want to leave uh, when you either retire or sell, pass away? What is it that you want people to remember well, that you've tried to accomplish? Well, Bustan, I'm not trying to be another shawarma place. I want to be the shawarma place. I want to be like people that refer to shawarma, like that they say Bustan. They want, I want to say like people that think of a burger, first thing comes to mind is McDonald's, right? Uh, we're not trying to be just another place by the changes that you see within our, our menu regularly. We're trying to be very innovative with our product. We're, we we try to be proactive on changes in the market, not reactive, like to come up with new ideas that people have not thought about, or it's things that are coming and we need to be advanced on it, of course, in terms of like offerings. Are you, also, you look, are you looking at moving into the U.S.? Are you looking uh, at getting out, outside of the Canadian border? We're just going to get there. Okay. We're not just looking. We're actually oh, going to be opening New Jersey soon. This is our next, uh, that's uh, like, I hope uh, from here till March, we're just trying to finalize on a location right now in New Jersey. We already have the signed agreement and everything. So the U.S. is a big market. That's my like my goal. Honestly, I'm not going to say worldwide. I'm going to say like Canada, U.S. expansion is really under like is my direct dream for the next few years for sure. So are you going into the U.S. with corporate stores or are they franchised? Franchised. Franchised. We're doing a franchise model for the U.S. Uh, I might actually do some corporate stores in Florida if I get the chance because uh, that would be my second home. Hopefully, yeah, that would that would just be a place to go visit. Yeah, I, I'm I'm, I'm here in the winter exactly. That's it. Uh, I'll go hide there for a few months. So, but other than that, no, I uh, we're going with a franchise model for the time being. Well, Bustan in uh, in Fort Lauderdale would work pretty much just like it would in Toronto too, right? Lots of Montrealers there. For sure. Uh, Imad Saad of Bustan, a really pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. You're going to hang around. We're going to have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur on the way. But coming up next, we're going to talk to our expert, Nick Moretis, tax partner at FL Montreal. And he's going to talk to us about business structures uh, to accumulate wealth and how to prepare for the sale of a business. Uh, Nick, welcome back to, to the show. Thank you, Dan. I'm uh, I'm fascinated because uh, Nick has promised to make this segment uh, on accumulating wealth and uh, preparing a sale of business as exciting as Lebanese food and the whole conversation we've just had. So, you know what? I've known Nick for a long time. He's highly reliable. We're going to wind him up and let him go. He's the spicy potatoes of accountants. Oh, guys, please. Wow. It's so I'm not, I'm not, I don't even know where to take that one. You're making me <laughs> hungry already. Um, no, Matt did an excellent job. Um, the topic that I'm going to discuss is, is hot. It's uh, it's in the last couple of days. There's still a lot of active um, uh, activities in the M&A market and private businesses. And I had a colleague uh, talking yesterday about whether or not we should incorporate uh, his client who has been running his business uh, as a self-employed uh, uh, entrepreneur. And and that started me, making me thinking ago, what, what uh, just as Imad was talking about processes to set up his franchise and how it was going to work. And it wasn't just uh, the, the delivery of food in, in, in business and in tax that the two has to be married together in terms of the process that you need to get max out 
uh, and accumulate your wealth and to be in a position down the road because we're always looking at the exit down the road as to how to get out. So we're, we're, we are looking at, and I think this is something that all businessmen should be looking at is the, the incorporation of their business if you're not incorporated, should you or should you not. And once you get into the incorporation, don't stop at just one company that operates your business and, and then stop there because uh, the, there's a lot of other issues. Um, businesses have risks and the risk, the risks, what you're not looking, what you don't want to do in a corporation is start accumulating valuable assets like, such as cash, other valuable assets such as real estate that, uh, that are useful in the business but are not necessarily uh, should be in the same place as where you, all the other business assets are. So you're looking at other corporations like holding companies to be the repository of that wealth and to move that cash and uh, into those companies and then use that cash to invest back into the business or to invest into other things or like if mad, open up another store. So you so you know, now all of a sudden your corporate, your, your structure has got two companies in there, not just one. And then you start wondering who should own all these companies and you're back into, well, what's best for the family? Cause usually in our private business businesses, it's always family. It's not just usually a one, you're not alone. It's, there's a family behind you. You could have partners. And when then we start looking at trusts, family trust, uh, discretionary family trusts. Um, that allow a trust to own shares, that allow the trust to own it on behalf of the family and to be um, uh, good for the family in terms of protecting its assets against uh, you know, creditors and enhancing something we call the capital gain deduction, which is a valuable uh, uh, measure uh, that is provided to entrepreneurs who sell their businesses down the road in the future that provides them um, and a certain amount of, of capital gains tax-free. And that's a savings, especially when we keep hearing that you know capital gain rates in the, in the future may go up uh, because of budget deficits, et cetera. So that is something that you're you're looking to set up. Doesn't have to go on day one. That's the thing that many people get scared because when you start talking, you need two companies, you need trusts. If you've got partners, you might be into multiple companies because just because of the the rules, people get a little bit upset. Hey, I just I need capital to start my business. That's fine. These structures can be set up down the road. It could be so long as you're thinking about it, so long as you're talking to your advisor and you know that that exit down the road is coming up and you plan for it accordingly. That's basically my message today. But Nick, you know, you, you, you talk like this and, and, and it's great. And for people that have lived through it, but, you know, to, to certain people, certain of our listeners, this is sounding like you're building General Motors, right? I mean, you're going to have hold codes, you're going to have trust, you're going to have everything else. I mean, as much as this is a complex environment, this is something that's done on a regular basis. This is, you know, not set up for just the, the rich and famous and wealthy. This is a very staple of corporate organization. It is not at all. Obviously, the, the you listen, it, it, there, there is a cost to this. I mean, having a company, there's a cost and people who have a company already know what it costs and setting this up. But you got to look at what are you looking to try to get? If if you if you have got a very small business and it's and it's it's basically enough to provide you with an income to to live, a lot of what I may be discussing is maybe overkill. However, corporations do provide a protection that you can't even look at it from a tax angle. You're really looking at it at a legal angle. It provides you protection. But as your business is growing and you start and and it doesn't take that much. It might be several employees. You might be generating. You may be hitting the million or two million dollar sales level. Then all of a sudden, what you're looking to do is how am I going to protect myself? Because you're in business. you got a lot of risk. I mean, business tomorrow, I mean, we are talking recession coming. So what would happen? We haven't had a recession in over 10 years. So the, it is something, but a lot of people have it. It's across the board. It's not just for the rich and famous. Nick Moreta is tax partner at FL Fuller Landau. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you.
And as we come to the end of the show, as usual, we ask our entrepreneur, Imad Saad of Bustan, for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Imad, what do you think? Well, it's, uh, you know what? I always say one thing. There's a lot of dreamers. There's not enough doers. I tell, tell people that have an idea, you know what? Follow your dream. Take action. The, the, name, the name of the game is not just to think about something. It's take, take the action about it. The first action is what makes you happen. Make, make things happen for yourself. You got to, today, take the risks. You know what? No risk, no reward. It's very important that you start working on taking risks in life. And that's why, you know, it's, you don't regret it. You know what? If you don't take risk at a younger age, you're going to regret it when you grow up. You're like, it should have. You know what? I, I'm a true believer of, you know what? I don't want to regret when I grow up. So I want to do whatever I could I could right now that I'm not going to regret down the road. Also, you know what? Speaking about three real markets today, markets have been changing a lot very fast. So you got to be very tech savvy and, and be up to date with how to use the tech and the internet towards your business ideas. You got to be also very adaptable to, to changes because changes are, are happening so fast. And you know what? If you're not able to adapt yourself to changes, you're going to fall behind very fast. And that's that's what it takes in today's market. Imad Saad, thanks so much. You uh, talking about taking chances. You are not going to regret taking on that brand, I don't think, <laughs> ever. Uh, Mike, what a great story and a, and a great brand that is close to the hearts of Montrealers. Most definitely, and you know, and, and it, once again, it's it's great to hear that you know the stories that we we listen to and and what Montreal is not only bringing to Montreal but to the rest of Canada and and, and North America in this case uh, is is fascinating. But I I will say, and I will uh, mirror Ramon's comment that that ultimately at the end of the day, it comes down to execution. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of people that sit back and 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 hope and pray. And you know, we talk about this. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show when we were talking about quiet quitting and passion and everything else. So you know, it it, it it's great to see. And you know, throw in a little bit of passion and throw in a little bit little bit of mindfulness. And I think you got you know, excuse the pun. I think you got a recipe. <laughs> Sounds good, Imad. Thanks so much. And before we go, uh, Imad might actually be interested in who's on the program next week. We're talking about styrofoam recycling. Finally, in Quebec, I'm not sure if that's been on your radar, Imad, but it's coming. And uh, and and so we're going to talk to a company called Polystiver. Uh, her name is Solène Brouard. And uh, finally, styrofoam recycling here in Quebec, probably of interest to the restaurant industry. So thanks again, Imad, for joining us today. Don't forget, you can subscribe as a podcast to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform, or log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles over the last 14 years. Thanks, Mike. See you back here next week. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, guys. Good talk.